0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, Wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and I am thrilled that you are here. If you have recently discovered the podcast and would like to know what inspires me to share empowering well-being education with educators, listen to episode 1 where I share my personal story and my hopes for the future of wellbeing education in schools. If you regularly listen to the show, thank you for taking the time to listen and share the podcast each week. It makes my heart sing to know that these conversations are having a positive ripple effect in classrooms, staff rooms and homes across the world. Creating this podcast takes a lot of time and energy and it's worth the effort. I am constantly blown away by the generosity of each of the guests and their willingness to share their knowledge and expertise so we can all learn, grow, and thrive. And today's guest is no exception. In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Nicole LaPera, or you may know her as the Holistic Psychologist on Instagram, about her latest book, How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles. Find peace and heal your relationships. As a clinical psychologist in private practice, Nicole often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for herself, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual health that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. In recent years, Nicole has become the leading voice in holistic psychology helping millions of people around the world rise out of survival mode to consciously create lives they love. In this episode we discuss why relationships can be a source of such pain, what keeps us in dysfunctional relationships, the importance of becoming the love we seek and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr Nicole LePera. welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, Break Cycles, Find Peace, and Heal Your Relationships." What do you hope teachers will gain from listening to this conversation?
1: Teachers play such a foundational role in the development of children. I mean, just the amount of time that is spent with children and you know, the impact that they can have. So my hope for the takeaway for all of the beautiful teachers out there listening is to gain some awareness on some of the more reactive, disconnecting behaviors that I think are very much signs that our little ones, our students, um, for parents listening, right? Our children are struggling with you know, nervous system dysregulation. I think some of the lack of understanding on what is really causing some of those disruptive moments, I think can really shift When we truly do understand, which then leads me to my second big takeaway, which is hoping to create with this insight and this awareness and hopefully some new tools, giving teachers the opportunity to create safe and secure settings, not only for these moments of dysregulation, though for generally having that safety and security will really allow students to tap into not only who they really are, but their creativity, their ability to learn and a
0: million different positive impacts. Yes, and it's over the last few years that we're knowing more and more the importance of safety in relationships. But before we really dive into things, can you tell us a little bit about why relationships and why are they so important? Imagining some version of
1: this statement might be heard by by listeners, often referred to as a social and interpersonal, wired to connect. Simply, humans need other humans. There's no way around that and this maps really down onto our physiology. Though the reality of it for most of us humans is we didn't have the safety and the security in our earliest relationships. Though the learning that we do, the modeling, you know, that we receive directly and indirectly from the caregivers around us, our actual relationship with them. Which impacts not only our ability and how we will relate to others, it impacts how we will relate to ourselves for a lifetime. So, s- to put it simply, the earliest models of relationship, how we had to show up when we did not have that safety and the security, all of the ways that we had to mo- modify ourselves, we will continue um, throughout a lifetime and often then translates to us being adults. And being in anything from unfulfilling, disconnected relationships to, as the subtitle of my book indicates, to repeating really dysfunctional, often self-harming, often relationship
0: harming, other harming cycles in our relationships. Yes, gosh, it makes me think at this time that my now husband, when we first met, I thought, oh, he's not really my type. And then one of my best mates said, yeah, your type doesn't work for you. (laughs) And I was like, "Whoa! actually you're onto something because we can get into these predictable cycles where we're treated in certain ways and then it feels like the norm. Yeah, really. I mean, that's
1: the reality. And I think we've all, many of us at least have had that very well-meaning friend who's shouting from the rafters, right? This repeated red flag though. I want to speak to the point of how it feels like the norm, because the reality of it is we could even know to some extent that that very well-meaning friend is correct, right? That this person isn't good for us. We could more or less see this red flag, though the reality of it is, and I talk about um, throughout my book, the science, the neurobiology, in very real ways, we are quite literally wired, driven to prefer the familiarity in those cycles, which is why I'm sure so many of us who've heard and even shamed ourselves for why do I keep picking the wrong partners on a, on a deep level we're compelled to, we're driven to. We've created a sense of safety, even though, of course, it doesn't map on to what true safety is, what secure love looks like. And even in the title of my book, um, my hope for the takeaway is how many of us have learned a definition of, of love and of relationship that is, again, Based on these earlier environments, that wasn't necessarily perhaps a definition or the experience, I should say, of a safe and secure grounded relationship.
0: And it's so interesting that relationships are fundamental to our well-being. They're absolutely everything. And when I think about schools and working in education, it's the relationship piece that keeps us up at night. We're worried about a student. We're worried about... colleague we're worried about a parent and yet that's the area that we've had zero training in the training we've had is our own families the school that we went to the teachers we've watched watching our colleagues over years and we do learn through trial and error but we don't have this explicit teaching in relationships so I'd love for you to paint a picture for us of what are some signs of a dysfunctional relationship I appreciate it. I just want to touch on that
1: point too, without being a teacher myself, though, I I think what drives even individuals into teaching somewhat is to, you know, gift the information, the wisdom, right? Get the children through the grades. So I do think it's a drive to be that point of relation, connection. It's that kind of inner desire to help shape that I do think from some teachers probably comes from their past experience of having had a positive relationship, you know, with a teacher foundationally or Maybe on the other hand, maybe having not so great relationship with a parent or for a teacher. So saying that to say, then to speak to your beautiful point, the reality of it is whether you're a teacher or not, very few of us have the learning, you know, relationships are kind of just assumed because we're relational creatures that we just come preloaded with how to relate to ourselves first and foremost, much of the beginning of my book really talks about that foundational relationship because that absolutely then maps on how we're going to relate to others. So to go into, let me start by first defining what a safe and secure relationship looks like. And then I can kind of categorize everything that isn't, this um, is a sign of dysfunction, though I obviously will give some examples. So a safe and secure relationship is peaceful. It's grounded, right? It's the ability to be yourself, acknowledging that the individual self has needs that sometimes differ perspectives, emotions that sometimes differ from whomever it is that they're in relationship with. It is also the space to be able to, because I think this is oftentimes a confusion based in what we learned or saw in childhood. It's a space to understand differences, to learn how to shift perspectives and not just see the world as we will naturally do through our own vantage point, our own lived experience and to negotiate then very actively. How these two individuals, assuming it's a kind of two person relationship that we're speaking of or a teacher and a student, right? How both of those as individuals can move forward in a way where both of their needs to the best of their ability are being at least considered, if not met in that moment. Now, jokingly, everything else is not, but dysfunctional actual patterns are where, again, just starting from the space of separation, where there isn't a space of separation, where we have the idea that we function, right, as a group. We think the same things. We have the same perspectives. There's no separation between our feelings. What you do or what you don't do impacts how I feel. How I feel about myself. I feel like I have to manage you. I'm responsible for your emotions. Of course, this isn't to say that we can't take responsibility for the impact of our actions. But when we blur the boundaries, we very much feel responsible for causing people's upset and their emotional experience. Um, which I, of course, go into deeper in the book. What emotions really are and how they are a creation, oftentimes of our own past, meaning simply we can't control the way someone else is going to feel. So that kind of lack of boundaries, it's one of the dysfunctional cycles that I saw repeated within my family relationship that I continue to repeat. Um, Another dysfunctional cycle, I think that is very common. I think more often in romantic relationships, though also in other types of relating, this idea that high stress Is part of a relationship. A lot of times we'll see it mapped onto romantic partnerships, right? With passion and these early kind of moments where it feels like we're riding a roller coaster. And in an absence of that, you know, we don't feel like this is a person. We can see this, I think, in just a lot of conflict um, within relationships, teachers and students, with peers or whomever. Um, And again, not to say that conflict isn't part of the natural experience of two different individuals, though it's this high level of conflict without. Resolution. I think that's another really, really common
0: dysfunctional cycle. I can see myself in all these different cycles at different stages of my life. And I remember early in my career, that blurred line was such a thing for me because I could only sleep deeply at night when I knew that all my students were happy and safe. And so that becomes a problem when you've got 28 students. And, you know, a few of them have some key things and I felt that responsibility, like it was my responsibility to sort their life out, to be the one to fix them. I'd watch the movies, To Sir With Love, Dangerous Minds. And like I had this story that I was going to be the one to change their life. And that's what kept me up at night. And I felt so attached to their emotions that it was happening to me.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and that is, I think, the byproduct when we take on not only people's emotions. I mean, I think what I'm hearing you say, Meg, is a more global taking on of a child's life circumstance, right, in a lot of ways. And that is so outside of, of any, you know, kind of teacher's control. Once the child, I can't imagine how that is to, to navigate emotionally, though you're responsible for the child certain hours of the day and then they go home to whatever it is that is happening in their family. And I have the idea that, you know, teachers after spending, you know, time with them throughout the school year might gain a sense of what it is that is happening at home. So how very real then is that knowing that you can do the best you can do during the time period at which you have them. And then there is a limitation to then what happens outside of that. And I think that's a really difficult place to be and of course i think then what we can begin to talk about is the way we navigate that right do we try to overstep and control things that are outside of our control or do we maybe detach and distant that's another dysfunctional cycle that i can mention here right becoming more avoidant of right connection entirely because it feels too emotionally overwhelming to contain the reality that there are aspects of this child's life so we just shut down emotions. And we just maybe make it about the curriculum in a very kind of cold or superficial um, way and remove the possibility for emotional connection. Because again, we're, we're talking about, for many of us, these activations of our own patterns of relating. And what we learned will get repeated. And oftentimes what is an outward manifest, what we'll do you lying awake at night, right, kind of ruminating about it. Some other teachers going down the path of trying to call the parent and intervene and get the parent to see or the other teachers like I was describing becoming detached, right? Then we're a living embodiment of the habitual way we once had to deal with or navigate our emotions in this context. And you absolutely see it mapped onto, I'm imagining, your relationship um, with the students in the classrooms.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And it was those early years of teaching where I was so confronted With multiple realities for people's lives. I grew up in a really stable household where mum and dad were there. We could have a conversation. And so I would spend so much time thinking, gosh, I wish I could take them to my house and give them regular meals and a safe place to sleep. And life could be so different for them if they had this experience. And that took so much energy wishing it was different when it wasn't. This was their life. I had the ability to be with them and support them with the six hours I had them. But I took years and years and years to actually realize I couldn't do anything about the other hours of the day.
1: I think that comes from oftentimes, I should say, the, the wishing, the imagining. It's different, right? Even the fantasy, right? That we can swoop in and, and create this change. And sometimes we, we do that. We wish, we imagine, we have a fantasy about our own then parents. Um, a lot of times that that is a byproduct. Um, it's a coping mechanism, I should say, right? If I live in this fantasy that I can control or that things were a different way, or if I idealize my role or, you know, my parents' role, we're able to stay protected, distanced from the reality of how we would feel and how we do feel given the circumstances, right? So just to use, if you don't mind you for an example, right? You standing in this ground of, you know, I can't impact. I do know. That this child is maybe lacking their physical needs being met, maybe emotionally they're not getting what they need at home or whatever is happening in between. Right. So to deal with that, I mean, now we're opening ourselves up to deal with all of the different ways, enraged, right, that we feel. And anger is a natural byproduct of when we're not getting our needs met when we witness someone who we care about not getting their needs met or being violated more so. There might be sadness, right? We we're mourning right? The loss of this relationship that we know this child desperately needs and then complicating it even more, depending on what happened in our own childhood and our own ability to not only to tolerate our own emotions. So for some of us, we have that same wounding. We were at one time that child who maybe was being violated or not getting their physical needs consistently met, or maybe we had an emotionally withdrawn parent and we didn't have that level of attunement, which leaves us feeling alone. Um, and that aloneness actually activates a very painful part of our our brain, even being excluded, being, you know, seen as separate within this family unit on whom we're so dependent. So now we have this whole complex experience. And I'm going to go ahead and make a very global statement. Very few of us as adults really, truly know how to navigate our own emotions. So we do fantasize to stay different. Shut down and act like we don't care, right? To distance ourselves as that way or become over involved, trying to over control. And really, those are all only just our habitual learned ways of trying to stay as far away or trying to
0: manage to some extent. Very real deep, deep wounding. Yes. This is really resonating. And I'm thinking about some of the beautiful colleagues that I've worked with over the journey and the relationships they form with their students. And it's almost like they need their students to need them to be the one to fix the things. And it becomes really messy over time.
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, that role, I give the language for what I call um, neurobiological conditioned selves, right? The fact that just like we were kind of touching on earlier, um, these, these ways of being are wired into us. And one of the, the names that's coming to mind here, and you say that is um, one of them I call the caretaker right the person who is in care of right and again somewhere in their own childhood they were able to gain self identity safety security in playing this role so it then is a natural kind of byproduct whether it's in their personal life or in the classroom um they continue to gain that sense of their identity and to keep themselves safe oftentimes safely externally right kind of looking at the person who's in need of care as opposed to more internally focusing on, well, what is coming up for me emotionally in these moments? Why is it that, you know, I'm feeling like I need to control what is happening outside of me. Um, but I think the caretaker is probably a big one, um, that, that comes alive for teachers.
0: Oh yeah. It becomes alive. And the more pressure that seems to be happening in schools, the more frantic we can become about trying to control everybody and everybody's experience.
1: I mean, I just think too, we're talking a lot emotionally. I mean, though teachers have so much pressure in the form of requirements and grades and like all of this other external pressure that is mounting up. So not only, right, are are they kind of wanting to care for, they have kind of hanging over their head, I imagine, in very real ways, very objective measures of or assessments um, of how they're doing. And I think sometimes, and I don't know if this is the case, obviously you would know more, I think sometimes then it can go into a hyper focus on the performance of the student, right? To try and make sure that, because part of the teacher's job is to teach, to impart the knowledge and the wisdom and to get the children to the the next grade, at least that's how it is here. So again, I just imagine, right, some of that controlling mechanism might get played out in this hyper, then pressurized environment to make sure your children are passing the requirements. Because again, that's, that's a very well intentioned, right? I want to impart the wisdom that part of my job, very big part of my job is for me to do or my task at hand. Um, But again, I can make a case that I think sometimes that becomes a result of this pressure, a result of this threat and insecurity of my identity as a teacher, right? If my students aren't performing well, I have a lot of thoughts just generally, and I don't know how it is in Australia, but in, in terms of the school system, right? And this very kind of one model of intelligence then and one way to assess it and how then problematic the cycles can be for all of the students who don't naturally fit in as the mounting pressure. And then they start to feel bad about how they're not performing. And if they don't have this emotional attunement that we're talking about, you know, a teacher who can understand that maybe their lack of performance isn't their lack of intelligence. Maybe it's a different type of intelligence, or maybe it's because they're so dysregulated with what's going on at home that to sit still in front of a book and learn is like the farthest thing that their survival driven brain can do in that moment, right? And so as we have this awareness, I think we can set ourselves up. If the school system is like that and isn't going to change in the near future, I think we can set up teachers uh, to be much more supportive from an emotional standpoint, from understanding and, of course, from learning how to create their own safety within so that they can then create the safe environment for a child, regardless of how they're quote unquote performing.
0: This is going to be such a gift for educators. When we learn the skill to be safe in our own bodies when life around us is chaotic because everyone's feeling a little bit more fractious, a little bit more dysregulated, the pressure is building. And so, how can we learn the skill of being okay with ourselves when externally life is not okay?
1: Really, really important question, I think I want to focus a bit on the ourself piece, because again, I think a big kind of driver of a teacher is to be in service, right, obviously to their students. And again, I always like to cite the probably very annoying by now cliche of the oxygen mask uh, announcement that many of us have heard on the airplane if we've ever flown anywhere. And it took me until more recently to really just really simplistically understand the reasoning behind that, right If we don't save ourselves in that you know moment of air travel, whatever is happening, then as simple as in you know it sounds, we, we won't we might not even have the consciousness to tend to the child or whomever it is around us to help another. Um, and just thinking you know about this caretaking kind of archetype and this drive to be in service, I think it becomes so natural. And again, because of probably the learned experiences that create it that drive within us is to kind of define even what service to another is. And we remove ourselves, right? I even hear language like, oh, it's to be selfless, right? To always be there for someone, regardless of what's happening in my life or in the world around me. And I, you know, having been very much a people pleaser, always worrying about, you know, how others around me are doing, how they're perceiving me, one of the biggest things lacking the boundaries, like we kind of both acknowledged earlier, I completely, removed myself from a relationship. And the byproduct of that is if I'm not tending to my physical needs, if I'm not aware of my emotions to be able to tend to my emotional needs, right, then I'm not, I'm going to be in a survival mode and I'm going to be, you know, in disagreement, in conflict at odds with the world around me. So then if we just continue to increase the stress in our individual lives, when things are happening in our personal worlds, in our families, the stress of what's going on globally in the collective, right, if we can't ourselves make sure that our needs are being consistently met and if we can't teach our nervous system because this is a physiological um, practice in a lot of senses, if we can't teach our nervous system and our bodies how to deal with stress, then the only thing that we're going to be left to do is to meet them or to even carry into our interactions these moments of, of reactivity. And we see them, the more stressed we become, the more at odds with our partners, with our students, the more unable we are to tolerate the stress of the world around us. We literally drop back into the habitual way that we've learned in those moments to distract, to dissociate, to detach entirely, to erupt ourselves, continuing the conflict. So- I think, A, it's having awareness of the very real role, right? This isn't just about knowing that I want to stay calm and grounded in these difficult moments or that I want to leave home, the stress of home or the stress of the world, you know, out of the classroom and my interactions. This is beyond just knowing it's actually teaching for many of us, our bodies for the first time, how to do that thinking about, you know, ourself as an individual in a physical body means outside often of these very pivotal moments where we want to remain calm and grounded. We have a student that's in a meltdown and we want to you know be grounded and able to curiously explore and be that safe um, nervous system for them to co-regulate with. I think a lot of us hope to just throw a tool in our back pocket, right? Deliver the right words in that moment, though in reality to be safe in that moment is the embodied practice, which begins as frustrating, I think this is, many, is for many of us to hear, especially with obligations in our life. Family is a classroom to tend to day in and day out. It begins with making sure that we're caring for our physical body. We're giving ourselves the nutrients that ne- they need. We're getting the oxygen, you know, by breathing calmly and deeply. We're getting the sleep that we need, those restive moments. And at the same time, we're kind of releasing all of the energy of stress. It's an energy running through our body and it results in tension in our muscles. So, right, whether it's stretching or gentle movement that more consistently than not, and for anyone listening who doesn't have, right, these practices already built in, it's the daily commitment to in small ways begin to make a movement toward getting those needs met. And then, of course, we could expand the conversation. The more we're doing that consistently outside of these acute moments, then actually we can teach ourselves how to remain responsive in these acute moments. We can learn how and what our own body's physiological markers are of stress happening, right? We can learn how to in those moments where you're having this meltdown around you really attune to, okay, is my breath starting to quicken? Is my heart rate starting to race? Are my muscles becoming tense? Am I clenching my jaw, right? All of those are signs that my body is getting ready to go into a stress response. And when I have that awareness in real time, now I can begin to make choices intentionally by releasing the tension in my jaw, by slowing my breath, which will eventually slow my heart rate. And now I actually have the opportunity to remain responsive and to be that safe and secure, calm nervous system that the child actually needs in those moments.
0: I love how you've given us this invitation to think about doing the preparation for those interactions outside of the classroom, to really think about our physiology coming into the day and that physical body piece. Because for so many of us educators, we're thinking about it's in the classroom, in the moment, so we want that sentence, we want that thing that we can just pull out. In the moment that's going to solve the situation. I can't tell you how many times I've had an interaction with a student and I've given them the best monologue. Like honestly, I was so proud of myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was definitely a TV moment. Like their life is going to change from now on. And then they come back the next day exactly the same. And then I would get frustrated because they haven't transformed their whole life overnight. And then that makes me feel bad that I'm not a good teacher. They didn't listen to me. I didn't say the right thing. But moving away from that more towards how is my body, how is my physiology in this experience, am I giving them the experience that I'm okay even though you're not okay? You being okay doesn't mean I'm good or bad. I can be with your behavior. And it doesn't mean anything about me. I don't need to take that personally. And I think that's only possible for us when we are feeling safe and secure and doing that work out of the classroom.
1: 100%. Because children, of course, you know, can, can hear the direct words that are coming out of our mouth when we're very beautifully delivering what it is to say in those moments. So a much more powerful message that they're getting is how they feel feel around us because their nervous system you know is wired just like an adult nervous system. It's always sensing outside of their awareness, the environment around us. I mean the simplest example, right, is when someone asks you if you're okay and yeah, I'm okay. Right. And your body is sending a completely different message that you're actually not okay at all. And that's going to be those moments I was actually giving a talk in the UK a couple months ago was over there and I had a question by I don't think he was an educator, though. He worked at like a, a, outp- or a kind of home program for youths who were struggling, who came from abusive households and very well meaning. He ra- raised his hand and wanted to know, you know, how do I get these students to feel, you know, safe around me? I want to be the adult whom they can open up to, right? Very well intentioned, knowing that they didn't have any safe, supportive adults in their home life or in their personal life. So he wanted to be that person. And my response was some version of the conversation that we're having now, right? In those moments, are you actually calm and grounded so that your nervous system is sending them that message that you're okay and you can can handle what it is that they're sharing with you? Or are you maybe, because again, from a very well intentioned perspective, some of us just try and, you know, kind of say what it is we think they want to hear, or just you can tell me anything. And in reality, our nervous system is giving them the completely opposite message that I actually am not safe. Um, you're not, or I'm not having an experience of you being a safe adult. And I think this absolutely applies um, to teachers as well, outside of those moments of reactivity, just cultivating, right? That sense of, I'm okay, regardless of how you're acting, what you're sharing or telling me right now, I can handle what it is that's going on emotionally. And that allows then the child's nervous system to relax into that same sense of safety. Now, of course there might not be a step or something that you wanna take after that conversation, um, but in that moment, that safe container is so important because that's gonna then determine not only what the child does next, so the likelihood of them continuing, right, to come to you in those stressful moments for calm regulation or when they do have something serious that they want to disclose about what might be happening outside of school, it's going to really determine on how they feel when they're trying to tell you or when, you're, when they're having an emotional reaction. So sending that beautiful signal of, I'm okay with how you're being, with what you're feeling, with what you're telling me right now is such a gift. Especially to again, the children who don't have those safe, secure figures outside of the classroom.
0: And it's so foreign. It's so foreign in education to be able to just be with it and not have this mind chatter of what will other people think. All of this mind chatter where we make these interactions personal about us and about our ability as an educator and moving towards this is an interaction. I am not responsible for the outcome of this whole entire situation but what i am responsible for is being safe and secure in my body and creating a space for support i actually don't have to solve everything
1: what you're saying meg is so wise when we build and cultivate a safe and secure base inside ourselves physically tend to ourselves to emotionally tend to ourselves right to be attuned to these inner instincts of what it is that, you know, I can do in the moment. Um, the more we we create that inside of us, the less then the worry still might be there. All of us, our minds are always constantly making meaning out of our behavior, making meaning out of other people's behaviors, worrying about the meaning that they're making out of what it is that we're doing or not doing. Though when we lack that safety and the security and or when we're so much more used to outsourcing and taking for others, right? Their perception on of us. And that's another thing because we can't control. We're all viewing the world through these lenses colored by our own past experiences. Half the time, people aren't even paying as much attention to us as we imagine them to be, let alone creating the meanings, you know, and sometimes they are. And to speak to that point, as we continue to create and cultivate that safety and security within us, even if we did not have that experience in childhood, if we teach ourselves that space, then while that might be reality, there might be a teacher up the hall who has something to say or is misinterpreting our actions in any given moment. Though something that I've really had to embody the practice of in my own healing journey is learning how to tolerate moments of misunderstanding, misinterpretation, learning how to tolerate other people and their filters projecting onto me, all of this meaning that in reality, more often than not, if not always, has nothing to do with me and objectively what's happening. So as we cultivate that secure base, it's not to say that that doesn't happen, right? Especially when you, you know, oftentimes are teaching with a community of other teachers who are, you know, up the block, up the hallway, I should say, you know, with their own childhoods and filters and thoughts and some of them then talk to each other. And you know, I can imagine it's just like another social group. I mean, this is what we deal with as humans, whether it began on the playground when we were children or in our offices when we we're adults. Though, so, so that doesn't go away. I don't ever want to give the idea to end what changes is our ability to tolerate it, to be so grounded and assured in ourselves and our instinctual reactions in those moments that it will mat will turn the volume down. It will matter less those moments of misinterpretation or of alternate opinions.
0: I love that we can give ourselves this safety through coming back to the basics, back to sleep, back to food, back to movement, back to rest, back to really considering ourselves and what we need. And as I read each of your books, what I love is how you share yourself and you share your stories. And it feels like we can have a laugh along the way of all the little things that we learned. And I'd love for listeners to hear how have your relationships changed as you've become more connected to yourself and more embodied and really caring for yourself? How has that shown up in your relationships?
1: One, I'm just kind of continuing with this theme of being an individual self. One of the most foundational changes is me beginning to set those limits, those points of separation. Right. Not just thinking, saying, taking responsibility, trying to avoid, um, you know, kind of upsetting someone else around me and actually creating the space in my personal life, which begins first thing in the morning for me, making sure that because one of the major passions now in my life is to be of service in a different way than, than teachers, but in, in a lot of ways, I actually do resonate with what I do now, less of therapy role, more of a teacher role to be in service, right? Imparting information. Though to be in that state of, you know, what I would call flow, right? Being in touch with, you know, the information or the wisdom I've gathered inside of me so then I can deliver it in service of someone else. That begins with what am I doing, right? First thing in the morning. Am I tending to those around me? Am I tending to my endless to-do list like I've been conditioned to do? to keep myself distant and separate from my actual needs and what I ha- what I need to be tending to my internal world, or am I taking those moments in the morning and obviously living, you know, with partners who I always kind of have differing flows, differing routines, differing needs, people who might want me to show up in support of them outside of my endless external obligations. I keep myself grounded and have learned how to feel okay right? Not just know in my mind, like I'm sharing with everyone that, you know, it's okay for me to take care of myself, actually to embody. And I'm very specifically saying that because there are moments where it doesn't feel okay, right? I look over at, at, you know, at the endless emails and my body feels like stressed, and I want to, you know, kind of go dive into those to get it done so I can feel better. Though the reality of it is what's going to actually make me feel better is taking those grounding moments in the morning. And what that is ultimately then translated to the next, I think, big shift is really to explore the role I've been playing in terms of my emotional connections in my relationship. Because for a long stream of relationships, I always had the complaint that you're we're just not connected, right? We're not connected. I'm not feeling, you know, what I'm imagining one should feel when you're in a close, committed partnership. And Typically, before long, the relationship would end for whatever reason, and I would go on in search of the person who I could feel connected to. And it really took me into my 30s to begin to look at the role I was playing. And of course, I talk about kind of that personal piece of all of the conversation we're having, all of the ways that I've carried from my childhood. And I came to realize that one of the biggest reasons I didn't feel emotionally connected, and this goes back to even ties into not being a self is because in reality, if I wasn't connected to my physical body and to my physical needs, understanding that emotions live as physiology in the body, understanding and coming to be aware, I should say that while my parents were physically present and making sure that my physical needs were consistently met, emotionally, there was a lack of emotional attunement. There was not even an acknowledgement really of emotions directly in the household let alone the physiological learning of how to be with my own emotions, to share my own emotions with even those closest to me, to be able to then feel supported, feel less alone in those emotional experiences. So to simplify it, the reason why I was not feeling emotionally connected was because I wasn't emotionally connected to me at all. I wasn't bringing or expressing it. And it's still while I'm shifting those dynamics by being more connected to my emotions and by learning how to express them so that I could receive the support, really at least that togetherness, you know, that attunement of someone just being with me when I'm in whatever feeling as it is in, I still feel very unfamiliar, very vulnerable, even sharing that I have emotional needs, let alone allowing myself to receive that support. So I just like to continue to give myself as a teaching example, because logically, right, I write books on this in my lived experience, right? I need, I won't say it. I'll expect still my partners to read my mind and just know. Right. Or I will be a person that no one, if they're in their right mind, would want to be around. I'm exploding. I'm not reacting. I'm running away in my room and I'm distanced. And then I'm holding them responsible for not supporting me when I'm a million miles away from receiving or allowing myself to receive the support I need, because it's again that old habitual pattern where acknowledging a need feels vulnerable. I then go into this eruptive, unsafe space where that connection doesn't yet feel fully safe and secure for me, simply because it's unfamiliar, not because it's not meant to be, not because I don't have partners that are able to give me that, because of my relationship, those emotional moments.
0: Oh, Nicole, you have given us so much to think about. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that?
1: I am up for it. I am inspired by... I'm inspired by you and by communities and the work that all of you educators out there are doing. I always think about the role of a parent, the task of anyone in care of children for the extent of time, understanding the extent of children and you know where they're at and what's happening truly in their homes. And like I said to you behind the scenes, I just it's so such an inspiring profession, calling, passion, purpose um, that so many of you embody. And for those of you and why I'm specifically saying you, Meg, for having a, a podcast and resources as you do um, to continue to educate the educators. I mean, in my opinion, and I talk about this in the book, the ripple effect, the science of that as we become more connected and safe ourselves is, is quite real. I have chills right now. It's quite life changing, um, not only for all of the children that you're impacting in direct service, if you will, though, for the impact to your greater. Communities, and in my opinion, to the world. When life feels hard, <laughs> when life feels hard, I remind myself that that's a part of life. There's such a conditioned part of me that has run away from physical, emotional, all sort of discomfort. Living, as I say in my first book, a million miles away on my spaceship, I'm wanting to deny, right, wanting to blame people for the hardness, uh, instead of really just teaching myself that hard. Suffering, difficult feelings are a part of it. Um, So, consciously, when life feels hard, it is hard, you know, and it's okay to be in the hard. An underrated skill is? Learning how to stay grounded, um, responsive, as opposed to reactive. In my opinion, as for this whole conversation, it's a life changing skill.
0: And I'm looking forward to.
1: I'm looking forward to this book and the hands that it will get into. I poured a lot into not only the research behind the book myself I'm in that very kind of raw vulnerable place where I'm like anxiously awaiting <laughs> you know kind of the impact that I hope it will have and I know I'm right around the corner from it being alive and published in the world so that kind of service part of me that passion part of me is is looking forward to the beautiful you know shifts that so many humans will see as they begin their own journey toward that regulation
0: nicole Thank you so much for going on this path, for giving yourself permission to consider your needs and to start this embodiment process. So, you've had the ability to articulate and share through your social media posts. Everyone I see, I'm like, yes, that, oh gosh, that's so true. How did you know? And the books, honestly, if anyone looked at my versions of the books, I'd just laugh because it's just bulk highlight. Then not have to go through and like, okay which of the highlights are the main highlight because it's so real and this is what we need. Everybody is yearning for real. There are so many complex issues that we're all facing and one way through is to come back to self. You know, As you say, to be the love that we want to give out to the world. So thank you for leading us and thank you for being a return guest on the School of Wellbeing.
1: Oh, absolutely. Again, thank you, Meg. I love that. The only way out is back to the self ending on those such beautiful words. Thank you all for your own commitment, everyone listening to returning to yourself so that you could continue to serve the world in such a needed um, globally impactful way.
0: enjoyed chatting with nicole and i love her invitation for us to move towards more compassionate generous and loving ways with ourselves and others how to be the love you seek break cycles find peace and heal your relationships is now available online and in stores to learn more about nicole and the wonderful work she is doing in the world make sure to follow her on instagram at the holistic psychologist If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 110. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.